Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast. <laughs> Brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Aaron. So, uh, what's been going on lately? Um, I just got a bike, actually, and I feel like this is probably the last weekend of summer that I'm going to be able to ride it, so I'm trying to take advantage of that while I still can. Yeah, you should take advantage of this 20-degree uh, drizzly weather. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the kind of summer we've been having. Get I'm out sure there. Now. <laughs> so uh, what song should we use for this episode? I think we should use, so the music in this season is excellent. Agreed. And we're moving into season two now. We're going to kick it off. Uh, and the track that we want to highlight here is uh, Daydreaming by Lupe Fiasco. It's a spy from behind my giant robot's eyes. I keep them happy because the mic fall out if he cries. Scared of heights, so I might pass out if he flies. Keep them all autopilot because I can't drive. The season two premiere um, comes in two parts. This is the first part of it. And it opens with um, Elliot and Tyrell at the arcade. It's established that um, the events that are going on right now actually happened before the hack, so before the events of the season one finale. So they've gone just slightly back in time. So the hack hasn't been executed at this point. Tyrell is curious about Elliot's motivation. And when he asks him why, he says that he's done all of this because he wanted to save the world. Yeah, that was really one of the quotes that stood out to me in this episode. And I think, too, because we're still supposed to see Elliot as a hero um, and that his intentions are good in spite of what his behavior sometimes looks like. Right. So it seems like this hack is all going according to plan. Um, Tyrell gets a phone call about the, the Honeypot server, and he instructs them to keep that offline. And we also find out that the Dark Army is um, actively ready to collaborate with F-Society. Because they must have run to the end of White Rose's timer, because they had given a very precise timeline for when this would be carried out. Now, I wanted to ask you, as more of a layperson, how, how real is what Elliot does when he executes the hack? Well, um, they don't really give you a bunch of information on like the, the nitty gritty of the exploits he uses and things like that. He just runs um, a Python script that he wrote himself. And what comes out on the screen, like uh, the output that it has about um, generating keys, loading sources of entropy, and things like that, those, those all make sense. And they're things that would be used by software that does what, what this one is advertised to do. As I mentioned in a previous episode, the the way they go about this hack is kind of inefficient and more, more dramatic than is necessary, because what they do is encrypt all of the files and then delete the key, which is just a slower way of writing random data to the disk, because encrypted data is, is supposed to look like random data. So they kind of end up doing it in a very roundabout way that probably wastes a bunch of time. I like here that Tyrell almost has like a childlike sense of wonder about what's about to happen. He says um, it's as if something has come alive, and I really like that quote. I really like that too. I like too that he tries on the F Society mask. Oh yeah, you know we have some of those masks ourselves. We do. They uh, made just for our heads, <laughs> uh, imported from Asia. We got them from the Orient. <laughs> from the Orient. That's how they characterize it. Um, Tyrell thinks it's a bit silly, but he's so giddy he doesn't even care. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> Although I do really like the juxtaposition of him saying, um, it's as if something has come alive, because this is the point where Elliot turns around and starts looking at that uh, popcorn machine. 
Yes, so back to uh, Chekhov's gun. Elliot takes the gun that Darlene's hidden out of the popcorn maker and I guess hides that away for future use. It rapidly cuts away from the popcorn machine to um, a shot of, of little Elliot, a flashback, falling out of the window of his house. And this is, um, it's an event that we've been told about a lot. We know that Elliot was pushed out of the window by his father, but it's something that we haven't seen yet. So this is kind of, um, it's using flashbacks to explain a bit of Elliot's backstory. It's interesting to see him at the hospital because the doctor is really the only adult who shows a lot of kindness to Elliot as a child. Yeah. The mom is screaming that there are no accidents. She's upset with the husband for pushing him out of the window. Um, she's really concerned about the cost, which I guess, I mean, the American healthcare context is a bit uh, out yeah. of our <laughs> experience, but you know, I, I feel like that's usually an inside thought. Maybe? Yeah, and I think that was a bit of a red flag to the doctor. Exactly, who asks to speak to Elliot privately, and I think the inference is the doctor is suspicious that he's being abused at home. So season two is really opened up by Elliot turning over a new leaf, and this life looks nothing like his old life. It's a real departure from season one. He's started, he's obsessively journaling, he's documenting nearly everything. It's worth noting that um, he's written on his journal Red Wheelbarrow, and that's kind of significant, but I don't think it's really been established why yet. No, I think this is the first mention. Oh, no, the earlier mention. Oh, no, I'm just going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> we are trying to maintain a spoiler-free environment in this recap podcast, so we're trying not to give you any information that you might have from uh, an another episode even though they're already out there yeah we'll spoil the episode that we're, we're recapping but not the future right and so part of me i'm really sad to see that elliot has moved back in with his scary mom yeah and i think that the flashback scene was juxtaposed with this one specifically to kind of demonstrate how evil his mom was and to, i think heighten our awareness of what a weird choice that would be for him he explains this a little bit by saying that he is trying to live in a perfectly constructed loop. So all of his days are the same. He eats breakfast every day with his new pal, Leon. Leon is so great. I really love Leon. Like, right away, for whatever reason, <laughs> um, Leon is played by Joey Badass. Yeah, so I, I really liked Leon as a character in the show, and I liked Joey Badass as an actor before I had even found out that they were also a really good musician. But um, they were in the news for something pretty funny recently. So remember when we were all told not to look directly at the sun? I think we've all been told that a few times. In our lives generally, but especially during a total solar eclipse? Yeah, because this episode was recorded a little over a week after that total solar eclipse. Joey Badass, I wish I had his tweet in front of me, but Joey Badass isn't afraid of the sun. <laughs> Our ancestors have been staring at the sun. <laughs> and they were all fine. <laughs> they were all thin and fancy glasses. <laughs> uh, we were going to go see him perform, but since then, his tour has been uh, postponed for uh, unexplained reasons. <laughs> for unforeseen reasons. Uh, we hope Joey Badass's eyes are okay, because we love him in this series. <laughs> uh, Leon is obsessed with Seinfeld. I feel like that uh, this scene really resonated with me because maybe you remember when I started watching Seinfeld that I wouldn't stop talking about Seinfeld to you because maybe we all go through that phase. I kind of love it because if it's characterized as a show that nothing happens in, 
People could sure find a long road to recapping <laughs> all the nothing that happens. And that's what Leon does at every meal. Well, what's so funny is that they actually reference like actual Seinfeld episodes, like uh, the Chinese restaurants and the uh, parking garage and stuff like that. Like very iconic uh, episodes of Seinfeld. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I like this. I like the way they establish this character. Um, and the other even more perplexing thing they do is they spend most of their afternoons watching people play basketball. Yeah, that seems kind of out of character for Elliot. I think it truly is. There's actually, there's a good, um, if anyone out there listens to the American comedian Hari Kondabolu, he has a joke about how he loves sports and most people don't understand why he would cheer for his natural predator, the athlete. <laughs> And I feel like that's so Elliot. Like, no these are not ever guys he would have spent any time with. He says he enjoys, or the, the way he can conceive of people enjoying sports is that it um, puts the invisible code of chaos behind the face of order. That sounds like Elliot, all right. That's the thing. That kind of normalizes it. <laughs> but none of this stuff really makes sense in the way we know the character, because the way he also spends his afternoons is uh, going to a church group to keep himself socialized. Like he's some kind of like puppy that doesn't act appropriately. <laughs> uh, and so he documents all of these activities day after day in this closed loop that he's constructed for himself. And the next scene we're gonna see him in, he is trying to explain some of these choices to Krista, his therapist. Krista sort of realizes as well that um, these actions are kind of out of character for Elliot. Uh, the questions she has for him are things like, um, why would you pick your mother to stay with, knowing that the mother is maybe a source of a lot of the problems that you deal with today? And also, um, are, are you really happy right now, or do you miss the life that you had before? He says that it doesn't matter, because in his old life he couldn't trust himself. And so this obviously like, really directly links to that three-day gap he has in his memory. And so I think... I think it's a deliberate choice he makes here to reach out to her for help because he tells her about the presence of Mr. Robot. Which he hasn't ever told her about before, right? No, he's very carefully concealed it from her and from everyone. So this is a big revelation for him. The other piece here, uh, because he does often address us, uh, I mean, we are the hello friend that he's constructed. Um, he also says that he doesn't trust us any longer because we've been keeping things from him. So speaking of Mr. Robot, um, Elliot takes off from Krista's place, and by the time he gets back to his apartment, he finds that Mr. Robot is there waiting for him. Where was Mr. Robot when he was looking for him all those times? <laughs> Good question. Uh, of course, Mr. Robot's there because he wants something, and what he wants is Elliot back working for the cause. Elliot wants him to go away forever. <laughs> yeah, I guess because um, these kind of drastic steps that Elliot has taken to take control over his life, they've had good effects for him, but not so much for Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot says that he's not going to be gotten rid of, and he pulls a gun on Elliot. This is a very, a very tense scene. This is very tense because at this point, I don't have a clear sense of what's real and what isn't. So I, I was actually watching this episode with subtitles on, and it just is subtitled with tense music. <laughs> it's very tense. Elliot doesn't seem that phased by it, and he just once again asks him where Tyrell is because Mr. Robot does have that information, or we believe he has that information, and he's not going to share it. That's something that's worth clarifying, because um, at the start of this episode, we saw that Mr. Robot, sorry, we saw that Elliot was with Tyrell at F Society. We saw that Elliot was about to take the gun out of the popcorn, and then we don't know what happens to Tyrell since then. 
And I'm not clear if that's the same gun that Mr. Robot is waving around now or not. Oh, either. me either. I bet that we could figure that out then. I almost can't believe this next part where Mr. Robot fires that gun. Yeah, he just shoots Elliot right in the head. And it's actually, it's portrayed in a very graphic way. And I think that this was kind of like um, the moment that showed me that season two was going to be different. Like, it was just taking a huge dark turn here. Uh, another way in, in which it kind of departs from season one is that um, Elliot gets up right away. He kind of starts to realize that he has more control than he thought he did. It's so creepy. The way he gets back up is almost like in a zombie movie when you shoot one, but it's not quite the right shot. Oh, yeah. So they just like slowly and deliberately get back up off the ground. <laughs> it's so tense. He also uh, alludes to the fact that this has happened before. Yeah, I think that might be why he wasn't so phased by uh, getting a gun pulled on him. I, I guess this is part of their routine now, that when Mr. Robot's trying to shut it down, he shoots Elliot, which phases him for a couple of seconds. But he is pushing back against him, and I do find that to be an interesting shift uh, in the way that they're interacting. So the next, the next scene might seem like a small scene, but I think it's indicative of a lot. And so that's why we're going to dig into it a little bit because F Society has become much bigger than like our group of friends at the arcade, right? Yeah, after 5-9 they were saying that um, like, random people on the street were interested in joining F Society. I suppose this is uh, an instance where anyone, by putting on an F Society mask, can belong to what's now an autonomous, decentralized group of... And I don't know if they're activists or troublemakers or just people who support the cause generally, but they're kind of out and about in the city organizing marches and this particular group has decided that they're going to meet up outside the stock market and they're going to cut the balls off the brass <laughs> bull statue. Uh, that is some nice symbolism. It's, it's very brazen, isn't it? It's so brazen because they're out there with, I mean, I can't name the actual tool that they're using, but like there's sparks flying off of it. It's... I can't name the tool either. Like I was going to try, but I'm going to get it wrong. The opposite of a welding tool, like a de-welding tool. <laughs> <laughs> some kind some, of saw. Some, some kind of, yeah, a fancy saw for brass. I also like here, because we've talked a lot in previous episodes about how kind of a toxic corporate masculinity is part of how they get to that particular moment in history. And so I think in particular, because they're cutting the balls off of it, <laughs> that there's a symbolic Absolutely. power in that. Well, what I find so interesting about that, and we're kind of getting off topic here and just kind of diving into more about the statue. I find it interesting that um, the perspective people have on it now is very different from uh, kind of the origin that it actually has. Yeah, so let us digress for a couple of minutes to talk about it, because what do, what's the difference between what people think that sculpture represents or came from and how it came to be? Well, I think as you can see, um, the F Society militants, they kind of think that it represents um, capitalism, corporatism, toxic masculinity. <laughs> That's definitely a valid interpretation of it, and um, the meaning of statues can change over time, as was demonstrated by this uh, stuff going on in the States. I think that the original intention was more to talk about um, perseverance and kind of like lifting oneself up by their bootstraps, because um, the truth is that the statue was installed um, illegally by an artist who made it themselves, and um, they didn't get paid for it or anything like that. And that let's kind of as a counterpoint, look at the new sculpture that's recently been installed next to it, which is of a young girl who's sort of standing in the bull's path, standing up, 
I think the interpretation initially is that this is um, femininity as a counterpoint to that unbridled market capitalism. And it was perceived as a progressive symbol, but if you look at who bankrolled it, it might not actually be that way, because I believe it's, it was actually funded and installed by a hedge fund. That's true. So it's not, uh, it's not a grassroots symbol in the way it was interpreted by people, but I suppose also we can always talk about, well, we could talk for a long time about how an artist's intentions are not necessarily what matters, especially in public art. Actually, recently, and, and it's interesting how garbled all of the symbolism of it has become, someone installed another uh, bronze statue of a little dog pissing on the girl's leg. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, to try to push back on what people thought that represented. It's so weird to me that you can just like make a statue and go install it in public and that's the end of it. Why yeah. don't we make our own statue? Imagine how much bronze costs. <laughs> like notice how each one gets smaller. <laughs> like It's like nice. a little Scotty dog or something. I don't know which uh, statue you're talking about, but in my mind I'm thinking of like the Zekel of Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes that people have in the back of their cars. Yeah, it's, it's not far off from that. <laughs> But of course, because this is a powerful symbol of the stock market, it's become a target of F society activists, and people are cheering and taking selfies with the balls. <laughs> like it's so, it's such a strange moment. But people feel really empowered by it, and that's energy that can be useful to this movement. So now to get back into the story, um, we're, we're introduced to a new character. We don't really know a lot about them, but they seem to be um, pretty wholesome. They're taking care of their health. They're on a run. Um, one thing that's really interesting that I actually didn't notice until I was rewatching this episode is that if you carefully look kind of on the left side of your screen as she's running past the fountain, you can see that actually uh, Darlene is sitting there watching her. So we don't really know anything about this character yet, but we see that um, he just gets home and it seems like Darlene is already planning something. I didn't catch that at all. I didn't see Darlene at all in the frame, so I find that so interesting. And a lot of this show is in the small details, right? So that's a good catch. When, uh, when Susan Jacobs gets home, uh, her smartwatch isn't working, and also she's got a smart house that's on the fritz. One thing I really liked about um, the, her watch is that it just says, unfortunately, my fitness has stopped. And it's just like, it's, that's me, all right. <laughs> but, um, unfortunately, all of our fitness has stopped. <laughs> yeah. So she kind of has a, a smart home, a lot of um, so-called Internet of Things devices, which means that she kind of has a a watch, a sound system, um, air conditioning and stuff that's all connected to the internet. And it seems like somebody is kind of playing tricks on her and taking control of all of those systems. And so I wasn't sure if it was that somebody had taken control of it or if it's just that all systems are on the fritz and nothing is reliable. I guess that's not really established, um, like just if you're watching this scene, but I think that um, knowing that Darlene is watching her and knowing that Darlene kind of swoops in to take over the place when she has the opportunity, I think that it, it's obvious that F Society was behind all of this attack. That's fair. That's fair. It's interesting because she is presented as very affluent, very wholesome. She's just as vulnerable as everybody else. Yeah, this kind of felt like an episode out of Black Mirror to me. I like that she calls to try to get the issue with, because the alarm is blaring, the stereo is turning on and off. It's like a barrage of sensory input. It's freezing, they can't do anything for her, uh, so she has to go to her other house. <laughs> what a hardship. How sad for her. Next we see Elliot though, who is um, staying with his mother. Uh, Gideon is visiting him today because all safe has went under, it's very sad for Gideon. And to make matters worse, um, the FBI kind of thinks that he's behind it. 
I do really have a lot of sympathy for the Gideon character. I think, I mean, there aren't too many people who are like a wholly good or wholly bad in this, but I think he's really good. I think that he's really good, and also um, he's kind of had a good track record of seeing through everybody's bullshit and never really like getting played like some of the other characters. So it makes me really sad that he kind of does everything right, but he still doesn't really, uh, it doesn't end up going very well for him. It doesn't, and so he's worried that he's going to have to wear the fallout of the 5-9 hack. He's there to ask for Elliot's help. Um, Elliot's not in good shape, so that head wound from where Mr. Robot shoots him is back. So he's got that all bandaged up. We can see the wound underneath it. And Mr. Robot is there pulling the strings in this discussion as well. The most traumatic moment of this, so we see now Mr. Robot getting increasingly it's interesting because he's more physically violent, but of course because he doesn't have a physical body <laughs> that it, it comes to nothing, but he goes to cut Gideon's throat. Yeah, th this was actually like a very, very shocking scene to me because they make you, um, they really make you doubt Elliot's reality and you don't really know if it happens or not. That's true, and also because at some points you're not sure who's pulling the strings. So it's intense, uh, and of course we all feel for Gideon. Elliot is not gonna engage with this because he's trying to remain totally separate from his old life. So he goes back to his comfortable loop uh, and the next time we see him, he's with Leon. Uh, Leon notices that Elliot has bandaged his head up. Um, so even if the wound isn't real, Elliot's wearing these bandages out and other people can see them. So he's he like noticed... that rapper used to wear the bandage on his face. What's that? He's like that rapper used to wear the bandage on his face. Oh yeah, who was that? Snelly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to our producer. We're so hip and cool. Who was that very famous, well-known? Who? Oh, Nelly. Yeah, I've heard of him. I've heard of him. <laughs> Elliot's worried about surveillance again. And part of it, too, is because his reality is getting kind of precarious, he's asking himself the question, how do you take off a mask that's part of you? Man, that's like that Goosebumps episode. I'm too old for Goosebumps. <laughs> You're going to have to explain it to me. That's really all it is. They put on a Halloween mask, but it like becomes part of their body. Oh, does it like, is it like a, like a spirit in the mask? It yeah, it's moment? like nightmare fuel. That's why I remember it. Oh, and so I'm, well, I'm so glad we brought that up <laughs> uh, for everyone who would remember that. But I like this question, of course, because part of the F Society activism that's happening is that increasingly everyone is wearing a physical mask, like a physical representation of the mask that they all wear. So yeah. I think that's an interesting question at this point. Um, I think that's really the the last significant part of the Elliot storyline for this episode, actually. Now we're back at um, the smart house that F Society has taken over. And just to be clear, um, the reason that they've taken over this house is that the arcade after the, after the end of the world party that they had is burned. It's no longer really an option for them, so they needed to set up a new headquarters here. But um, when we cut back to this location, what we see first is um, it, it's kind of out of character for Darlene. She's, she just seems to be really upset, and I wasn't really sure what to take from that scene. I think it's hard for us because she's so outwardly tough. She's always very strong, and she tries to be a support to the others and keep them motivated. So to see her kind of privately falling apart almost feels like an intrusion into her character. That's a good way to put it. I think at this point, this uh, again is, you know, winning is easy and governing's harder, where I think 
the question of what are the next steps or what is their purpose now that the hack has actually been pulled off, I think all those things are surfacing for that character at this point. I think it's really great that they're kind of um, fleshing out the characters a little more and making them, they're, they're very complicated. I find that there aren't any characters who are just like one dimensional in this show. And this I think is a strength of season two where the pacing is different and the storytelling is different and it really does let us get in depth with some of these characters in a way we haven't before. And I think we both have a great affection for the Darlene character. Darlene, especially in season two, really becomes my favorite character. And I always liked her. I weirdly, I like even when she's erratic, but I do think she's the backbone of this whole thing. And I think it's um, underplayed how smart she is and how much leadership she has. And so she kind of comes into her own um, well, in even choosing this as a headquarters, right? This is not um, a target that's not politically loaded. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. This is E Corp's general counsel's house. So that's where they find themselves set up. And you notice here there's an interesting parallel to a scene from the last episode. Yeah, so I think um, we kind of see that Darlene is very upset, but she kind of puts herself together, uh, fixes up her makeup. And then she goes out to address the, the new group of deaf society militants. And I think that it's, it's directly intended to reference the scene that we saw with um, Price at the, was it a funeral or a press conference or something like that? Um, when he was addressing the crowd to talk about Pluff's suicide. I think that um, they, they're both shot in almost exactly the same way. And it's kind of intended to show the parallels between the two characters. What you said about Darlene um, being a good leader is definitely true, and that really shines here. I like to, because we talked a bit about how that scene with Price is almost like a dictator's address to the people. And her language here is actually very uh, militaristic. So it's even more a parallel. I think her motivations are entirely different, of course. But she, she says things to them like, we're in a war and we're on the losing side of it. So she's trying to rile them up, right? And I, she deliberately employs these rhetorical devices. This isn't an accident. And I don't even know that she fully believes that. But she's using it to great effect here because this crowd is for sure riled up. Um, I also learned something interesting about Charlie, about Carly Chaikin. Charlie Kaken? Charlie Kaken. <laughs> I bet she gets that a lot, actually. It's just, I have a problem where if I have to say several words with slightly different syllables uh, in a row, I, I screw them up, the letter sounds. That's cool. I have a problem with all words, just in general. <laughs> so Carly Chaikin, um, actually, she's a painter. I find that really interesting. It kind of is like uh, Julie Badass, where they're like an actor who also has a and art on the side. I'm curious about whether any of the other actors kind of have side hustles, um, or, I mean, this may be their side hustle, acting in Mr. <laughs> Robot. But if you look at Carly Chaikin Art on Instagram, you can see some of her paintings. There's some really cool stuff in there. So that's just some uh, interesting background on uh, the actor who plays um, probably our favorite character at this point. Another thing that's interesting about her is that um, she only started acting, I think, like in the last five years or something like that. And now she's on a show that's like won Peabody Awards and stuff like that. So she's really taken off. She's also, I think she's only 25 or something. She's very young. So, man, I, I'm I, turning 25 like next week and <laughs> feel like I'm very unaccomplished now. Some of us are 35. So, uh, <laughs> you know, all, all in good time. <laughs> We have um, a scene, the only two members of F Society who are here right now are Darlene and Mobley. 
And Mobley is criticizing her because he says she sounds just like George W. Bush, <laughs> which would be some pretty harsh criticism for Darlene, I think. Seriously. Um, can you talk a little bit about what Darlene is actually doing? Yeah, well, I guess um, at this point, they, they've succeeded in, um, in, in hacking eCorp. What they're finding is, is that now you need to kind of follow through and make sure that they aren't able to recover. So Darlene uses um, a tool called Social Engineer Toolkit, which actually we saw Mobley use in a previous episode to spoof sending an SMS. Um, she uses this to prepare a USB key with a ransomware on it. And we can see that Mobley ends up bringing this to work and infecting them uh, with this ransomware, and it takes over all of the Bank of E. But um, ransomware is something that is terrifying and interesting, so I'll spend a minute talking about that if you don't mind. So normally when you're using um, encryption, when most people think of encryption, they think about what's called uh, symmetric cryptography, which is to say that you use the same password to encrypt something as you do to decrypt something. But uh, ransomware is based on something that's kind of more recent as in the last like 40 or 50 years called asymmetric cryptography or public key cryptography. And the idea there is that the password that encrypts data and the password that decrypts data are different. So you can give someone the encryption key and encrypt all of their data while you have the decryption key. So you can decrypt it, but they can't. And that's kind of the basis of ransomware. Public key cryptography um, combined with Bitcoin kind of lets you um, take over somebody's system and then anonymously get money from them in return. And we're about to see that, uh, the effect of that <laughs> in the next scene that we come to. One kind of interesting Easter egg before we leave the ransomware scene is that uh, there's an icon of a, a jester or a clown or something on the screen, and that's the avatar of a famous hacker whose name is the jester. It's a, a cameo. When we come to the next scene, uh, which takes place at a Bank of E location, I think we see one of the unintended consequences of the 5-9 hack. And so that's that although people's debts can't be proven, their assets also can't be proven. I guess they hadn't anticipated that side of the coin. And I don't know if they didn't anticipate or if it just didn't weigh into it, really, because it's never really discussed the like this kind of scenario, which is really that it's a woman, she's like not a one percenter, she's presented as kind of an ordinary middle class person who can't prove that she's paid off her mortgage and she owns her house. And so while she's fighting with the teller, we see the jester face pop up on all of the terminals in the bank uh, with the message that the data has been encrypted by F Society. Right. Uh, the ransomware is making the demand for $5.9 million, which seems to be uh, less about that being a really big quantity of money and more about the symbolism of 5.9. Uh, I think that kind of tells you that it's F Society right away. Um, this is obviously a really big deal. So there, there's an emergency meeting put together between Price and Scott Knowles and um, the general counsel, Susan Jacobs, who owns that smart house that was hacked into. And she had to come all the way from her alternate house in Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, what a hardship. Um, so I, I think that they decided that it was a good idea to pay the ransom. So they have a bit of a debate about it. So the, they have been instructed to deliver $5.9 million to Battery Park City at 9 p.m. And the FBI is telling them not to. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, normally, like with your with your traditional ransom, it's said to be a really bad idea to pay um, to pay any ransom demands. But I find that with ransomware, it's still not really established if it's generally a good idea or generally a bad idea, because ransomware authors have actually been pretty good about decrypting your data because they want you to they they want to present a good customer service experience for you. <laughs> so. Um, I think that a lot of the time people actually say that you should pay ransomware, 
But in some cases, in, especially with some of the uh, very high-profile ransomware attacks that have come out lately, the uh, the encryption key is deleted. So kind of like the 5.9 hack, it's not possible to get back the data whether you pay it or not. And so I suppose, I mean, all of that depends on credibility, where if the trend is that people have been paying ransomware demands and that's been honored and they get their data back, maybe it seems like a good idea. And so I think this part of this scene just really heightens the difference between who these people are and who um, ordinary people are or who F society people are. Because remember, everyone is restricted now. You can only withdraw $50 a day from a bank. So everyone's on cash restrictions. Credit cards don't work. Nothing works. They've been asked for $5.9 million. And Susan Jacobs says, I think between us, we can find that between our couch cushions. Wow. Um, there's the last part of their request, though. And that's that they have to send one of their chiefs to deliver it. I wonder who they had in mind when they asked that question, or if they had anybody in mind at all. I wondered if they had someone specific that they wanted to see. And I think Scott Knowles is the person who volunteers to do it. I don't think they have the linkage with him that Tyrell does. That's right. But it also makes me wonder a little bit about how influential he may have been in setting up some of these steps. Although this seems to be kind of independent of Elliot. I feel like this is led by other people. But Scott Knowles is the person who volunteers to do it. And that is the end of the episode. Thanks a lot for listening to Mr. Rewalk. This episode was recorded in downtown Toronto. If you enjoyed our episode today, we'd encourage you to consider contributing to Wikipedia. You can find donation opportunities at wikimediafoundation.org. Or just go edit it and contribute it that way. Oh yeah, I guess there's all kinds of ways you can support them. I'm Devlin. I'm Aaron. Bonsoir. <laughs>